Welcome to God in the Ordinary, a podcast to help you reveal God to others during your everyday. Special guests share their stories with songwriter and author Sharon Tedford. Today's guest encourages people to reveal God where they live. As an Asian American, he's passionate about seeing the gospel shared with intercultural communities. He's a church planter who trains others to do the same. My guest, director of the SEND Institute, Daniel Yang. Daniel Yang, I'm so happy that you're joining us today. Sharon, I am so glad to be here. It's lovely to have you. Can you tell everybody where you are today, please? Yeah, I live right outside of Chicago with my family in a suburb called Aurora. Okay, now I've heard that the suburbs outside of Chicago are called Chicago Land. Is that real? It makes it sound like Disneyland. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that. You know, you're in DFW, like the Metroplex, and so instead of calling it that, they call it Chicago Land. But yeah, no big roller coasters, no uh, Mickey Mouse ears here. <laughs> <laughs> that's good to hear. You don't have to walk around uh, with a card to get you onto every ride. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. It's great to have you with us here today. I know you're going to have some great things to share. But before we get started into our questions, what we like to do here at God in the Ordinary is to ask our guests to share a reflection from Isaiah 61, because that's an important passage for us. It's a great place for us to springboard from. So would you do that for us first, please, Daniel? I'd be glad to do that. Isaiah 61 is an Old Testament passage describing a full-blown city revival led by common people and not just by religious leaders. As I was reflecting on this chapter, my mind drifted to the scene in Luke 4 where Jesus was handed the scroll and he reads the first few passages from this particular section. Jesus operated with an intense clarity of call. Isaiah 61, he used it as his public announcement of his ministry and his call. And his call wasn't just to do the work of preaching and healing people, but it was to also create a people out of Jews and Gentiles to do the same. Jesus would use his own life to ransom a people so that he could live out this mission with those people. He wouldn't do mission alone. And this passage frames the work of the Messiah in terms of restoring a city. It's the year of Jubilee, and a city is being repaired and receiving rest. Prisoners are being set free. Debts are forgiven. Joy replaces the despair that was felt in the streets. Justice prevails. And the model of a restored city, that's an example to the nations of what it means to live in righteousness. This was a full-blown city revival. No real mention of religious ceremonies, no mention of religious elites or leaders, just righteousness and peace in the city streets. The only priests, actually, that are mentioned are everyday commoners because they're living out God's righteousness to the foreigners among them. You see, you don't need a religious system to be a witness to the world around you. You just need revival among God's people that spills over into the streets. I've never seen a revival on this scale. I've only seen minuscule glimpses of it in my own ministry, but I've never seen a large-scale awakening that's replaced the need for professional ministers and religious workers because the everyday person was set free to proclaim the joy of salvation in the streets. 
I've not seen a version of Christianity where buildings were negated because the church was busy happening in public spaces, that when Christians were entering into the marginal places of our city, they weren't there just for photo ops or quick inner city projects, but they were there because they were called to live among the poor and the brokenhearted because they had received the same call that Jesus did. And just as Jesus was given the spirit to do this work, we also have that same spirit. Wow, thanks for that, Daniel. You mentioned how Jesus operated with an intense clarity of call. How did you know that God had called you out of corporate America and into ministry? Could you talk us through that crossover? Yeah, I don't know if it all came at the same time. I was an engineer for about eight, almost nine years, and I was in IT. Uh, and I was doing quite well in terms of uh, you know material success and, and career advancement. But it was a series of, I think, life crises, personal crises, uh, Sharon. I think it started probably when I was 24 or 25. My wife and I, we'd been married at that point uh, five or six years. We got married earlier, uh, 19, and had our first child at 21. I had an intense crisis of faith. And so, uh, long story short, after two years of struggling with my faith, I decided that I was going to pay my way just to learn the Bible. And so, it wasn't so much that I sensed a change of vocation, but I just really wanted to learn the Bible. And so, um, had I known you can learn the Bible in other ways, I don't think I would have paid uh, a seminary education. But I uh, <laughs> enrolled in seminary, and um, it was probably about two years in the midst of seminary where I started sensing, hey, you know, a combination of my personal intellectual doubts, my story as a second-generation immigrant refugee to the United States, and then my passion at that point to see uh, people come to understand who Jesus was, those things intersected. And although I didn't sense a dramatic shift in vocation at that moment, I knew that like the compass for my life had to be in the direction of really, you know, what we would call in church missions. But I think at that time, I was just asking the question, God, how can you use my background, my own struggles to connect with others that might be in a very similar situation? So that was really the beginning of me asking the question, you know, God, there's got to be more than just me making money as a consultant. That's really interesting. So you're saying that we don't need to have a seminary degree to know who God is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think for me, yeah, again, I grew up in a pretty traditional I think it would be a church that most people who in the United States would recognize, uh, you know, so we very faithful people and very traditional in terms of our theological development. Uh, and I am really thankful for seminary, so I'm not I'm not knocking on seminary at all. As a matter of fact, I'm in the midst of doing my PhD. But I think what I hadn't realized was that that process of going to seminary was probably less about equipping me for ministry. And it was a season of like intense focus. Like I had to ask a lot of like um, navel gazing questions. I, I remember, I'll put it this way. My wife, her name is Linda. And I remember in the midst of this process, saying to her one night in the midst of like my season of doubt and, and this is where I was coming from before I entered into seminary. I actually said to her, I said, hey, you know, uh, you know how I'm struggling with my faith right now, but if I, if I remain a Christian, I promise you, you know, I'm going to remain in this marriage and I'm going to be the best father to these kids. I mean, it was a pretty desperate place for me. And so 
for me, seminary was really less about like being trained for vocational ministry. And it was just about me uh, being in God's Word and letting God's Word be in me. And I think that process is something that can happen outside of theological education, academic institutions. As a matter of fact, there's so many people that I, um, you know, I work with church planters and I work with church planning organizations. And some of the most engaged people, some of those who are the best listeners of their community, those who are, uh, in a sense, most connected to non-Christians, they tend to be the ones that have the least formal, you know, theological training. And part of that is because there's an earthiness to them. Uh, They haven't become so polished that non-Christians can't relate to them. And so I think if you can get a theological education and still maintain that, you might have the best of the both worlds. But there is a, there's, this is a joke and I'm just kind of joking around, but some people have said that seminary is kind of like cemetery. You know, that's where a lot of people go for their (laughs) zeal to die. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, I can see what you're saying there. I hear you saying the word connection a lot. Obviously, you think that connection is important. And actually, you said that as part of your reflection that Jesus would not do mission alone. I think that was really powerful. Why do you think that was? And why do you think that's important for us today? Yeah, you know, I think it's the nature of God, first of all. I mean, God is such a, a relational being, you know, in himself. Our conception of God as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, it's so unique compared to any other worldview. It's the idea that God had already, for eternity past, existed in harmonious, uh, life-giving, joyous relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that that intense and also satisfying relationship spilled over into creation. You know, it was out of that relationship that he created. And I, so I think in some ways, and, you know, and then the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, 26 on, that then when God made human beings, he made us in his likeness. And so it was that relational, self-aware, we need others um, that really was embedded into the first humans. And I think that to me, that's just the nature of humanity. And Christians, we do have to be a little bit careful because we think sometimes we have the corner market on the image of God. And, you know, Christ is the, you know, he's the personified best expression. Paul calls him in Colossians, you know, the icon of God. But that relational aspect of connection and the need for humanity to to know each other, like that's that's all over the place. You know, it's my neighbor next door who is not married to his partner yet, but they're trying to create a life together. And there's something about, even though I feel like their lifestyle is outside of what the biblical design is for relationships, there's also something there about their desire to live a life together, even though they're not married, that I want to um, call out. And so finding those ways to connect, not just with Christians, but with non-Christians, based on the image of God embedded in us, because God himself is a relational person, I think that's the foundation for what we understand as mission, ministry, church. Yeah, finding ways to see the image of God in others and for them to help see it in themselves too. That's so important. And it's not just like this personal identity, like this is me. You know, I think of like, um, I've got a little girl and she loves Elsa and... um, I'm so sorry. 
<laughs> I'm trying to think. And this is how good I am, you know, in terms of like a girl Disney. I have four boys, and then finally the little girl came along, and now I'm trying to like remember because I'm so used to seeing WWE and you know the NFL, and I got to quote Elsa songs. Uh, but there's that song from Frozen. Where she's talking about, you know, how it's all inside of her and she's going to let it out. She's going to let it go, right? There's no hiding. Um, and sometimes we can have such a individualized understanding of the image of God in us. And there's definitely that individual component. But to go back to your question about connections and community, the reality is that the image of God actually uh, is, there's a corporate understanding of that. And you actually don't understand more of the image of God unless you're with people, doing life with people. You're calling things out of people. People are calling things out of you. And the image of God is actually lived out uh, more fully. What's beautiful is when you do this with other Christians, you're you're being the church, you know. When you're doing this with non-believers and you're calling the image of God out of them, that's a form of evangelism. And I think it's something that every one of us, we're, we're called to do that. Yeah, I agree with you. That's exactly what we're trying to encourage people to do here on God in the Ordinary, is to call out life in the people that you meet and to reveal God in you and to remind them that God can be revealed through them when they meet him too. That's really helpful. Daniel, I know that you grew up um, in a city and I also know that it wasn't always easy. So in the connections and the community that you've grown up in lots of different cities over the last couple of decades, actually, what is it about city dwelling and city people that brings out the Jesus in you? Yeah, you're right. I was born in a small town in Illinois, but early uh, when I was about eight or nine, my parents moved to the inner city of Detroit. And uh, if anybody's seen the movie Gran Torino, there's kind of a portrayal of refugee immigrants in the inner city of Detroit. And that would be very similar to my background. As a matter of fact, if you've seen that movie, half of those people in that movie were from my home church. And, and those kids in that movie were kids that I had mentored in our youth group. But it was interesting because uh, we were Asian uh, Hmong uh, refugee immigrants living in a predominantly African-American uh, inner city uh, situation. And I think at the time when I was a kid, uh, it was it was a tough go because of the just the conflict and racial tensions. But the flip side of that was I actually uh, grew up reading Maya Angelou, uh, Langston Hughes, you know, um, Alex Haley, James Baldwin. Like I, you know, these were the prophets that I read in high school. And there was a richness that I learned uh, as a second gen Asian American refugee um, from the African American experience that really uh, has has shaped me for life. And um, I say that because at least in the United States, and I know you have listeners from all over the world, but at least in the United States, when we think of like urban, inner city, um, those kinds of situations, that does tend to be where African-Americans uh, dwell, although they're progressively moving out into the suburbs. There's actually studies on this. Latino Americans and other immigrant groups, it's been um, a part of, I think, the diversity and the change of demographics in the United States. If you want to see the future, really, of a lot of our cities, you know, in our metroplexes, um, you should go to the core of our cities and see what's going on there. We were talking about Houston earlier before we hopped in the podcast, and Houston is such a, a crazy city. I'm not a big fan of Houston. I mean, Houston's kind of a weird city because, like, there's no great zoning laws, and you have, like, subdivisions next to, like, technology parks and stuff like that. But Houston's an amazing city in that, like, it is so 
diverse and it is so meshed. The integration of diversity is so, so rich and beautiful. And I think in some ways, at least in, you know, North America, cities like Houston represent the future of, you know, what other American cities are going to look like. And so for me, that's really exciting when we talk about like, what does it mean to be a Jesus follower uh, in the city? Because it does require cultural intelligence. It requires learning to honor and respect people from different backgrounds. And uh, it reminds me of uh, the uh, ministry that Jesus had with his disciples. And there's a moment where Jesus, they leave kind of what's normal. Uh, they leave Jerusalem, they leave Capernaum, and they cross over into Decapolis. And this is really their first time doing ministry outside of their like Jewish region. And they go into Decapolis, which is more Greek and, and Hellenistic. And it's, you know, it's a region of 10 cities. And he's teaching them cross-cultural ministry for the first time. And I think in some ways, uh, that's always been the heart of Jesus' followers. For those of us who live in the city, we just get to see that uh, up close uh, every single day. That's a really interesting phrase you just used, cultural intelligence. How, how can we develop that? There's actually a whole field of study on this. Uh, sometimes uh, the abbreviation CQ will be used. If you were to Google cultural intelligence, there's organizations. David Livermore is probably one of the leading voices on this. But at the basic foundation for cultural intelligence is you have empathetic listening and learning so that you can improve the way that you communicate and cooperate with others. At the most basic level, Sharon, I think for, for kind of those of us who are kind of lay people when it comes to working cross-culturally, it, it really boils down to uh, who sits at your dinner table, you know, during the weeknights, um, who's allowed to marry your children. Uh, it's like really basic stuff like that where you're learning to have the most personal and the most private parts of your life. You're allowing that to be impacted by other people of different cultures. And the more agile you are in allowing that to happen, the greater cultural intelligence you're displaying. So that's kind of the concept. Thank you. The simplicity of sitting around the table with people of different cultures is so deep. We mustn't miss that. And I'll give you a really nerdy word for that, okay? <laughs> it's called commensality, commensality. And that, that's this idea that we can only improve ourselves and others by sitting at dinner tables together. So listeners, don't tell us we never teach you anything. Commensality <laughs> is your word of the day. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to God in the Ordinary with me, Sharon Tedford, and my guest, Daniel Yang. Daniel, you started to tell us a bit about your family just now, so I'd love for you to dig a bit more into that. Can you tell us how your family came to live in America and what legacy changes do you think have come about because of that bravery? Yeah, I am increasingly becoming more and more aware of the importance of my heritage and background. My parents are both Hmong, uh, and they were born and raised in the country of Laos, which is in Southeast Asia, uh, near Thailand and Vietnam. And um, to make a long story short, the war in Vietnam was, was probably televised more uh, in the West 
there is a simultaneous war being fought at the same time in Laos. And uh, later it would be you know, revealed that it was called the secret war in Laos. But it was basically the same war, and it was being fought, you know, in in the country of Laos. And the Hmong people, they were tribal people that lived in the mountains. They were recruited by the CIA to fight alongside the uh, Americans as guerrilla fighters. And their primary role was to, uh, one, cut off the Ho Chi Minh Trail, where a lot of the supplies were coming, and two, to rescue downed pilots. My dad was uh, recruited as a fighter. Long story short, when the war ended in 1975, those who sided with the Americans were essentially stranded and uh, ethnic cleansing began to happen. And so my my dad and my uncles and, and uh, relatives and several other thousands of Hmong people, they stayed a year or so to form a resistance, but when they knew that, that, that they could no longer stay in country, they fled to Thailand as refugees. So they literally swam across the Mekong Delta, which was what separated Thailand and Laos. My family was in Thailand for uh, nearly three years as refugees before they immigrated to the United States, um, which is fascinating because all that time, uh, my dad was, he was not a Christian. He had some semblance of a creator God that was a part of the Hmong uh, folklore, that there was a creator spirit. Uh, we called him Yashel, which means this idea that there is a, a grandfatherly divine spirit out there. Um, but there is also, you know, multiple variations of that. And he was 40, 40 or 41, which Sharon, I'm 41, believe it or not. I don't uh, believe that. <laughs> but he was my age, my, <laughs> my age, my stage of life um, when they immigrated to the United States. They were sponsored by a Lutheran church in a rural uh, part of uh, Illinois, uh, two hours outside of Chicago. This little church uh, really just took care of uh, my family, taught them how to, you know, use appliances. My dad was a landscaper. They got him a job, taught them English. And it was over a span of a few years that eventually my dad in his early 40s became a Christian. And it's amazing because he is the first known Christian in our family line. It still boggles my mind to think that my dad really was the first Christian ever that we know of in the history of our family tree. And I think that in, in some ways, you know, we talk about the American dream and we talk about like, you know, the possibilities of what happens, uh, you know, through things like sponsorship and a refugee. But, you know, the biggest thing that I uh, have learned is that uh, the American dream is not what was actually happening. Like that, that wasn't the meta narrative. Like, my dad came into this eternal story of the kingdom of God, and it was it was bigger and better than the American dream. And for me, because that really took root early on in our family, he raised us to to know Jesus. It it really uh, set the trajectory for much of my life. And even though you know I ended up being an engineer, my sister was a physician, my other sister was a lawyer, my other brother was an engineer. I my brother and I we joked that my sisters were the sons that my dad never had because they were the doctor and the lawyer. We were just lowly engineers, but never in the his in, in our family, our siblings, like careers were never like there was never a competition because ultimately everything that we thought tied to the kingdom of God. 
Like, and that's how my dad raised us. And so in some ways, um, our story was never framed by how do we live the American dream? It was always framed by how do we seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness? So I mentioned earlier that I struggled quite a bit with my faith in my mid-20s. And I think there was that big picture that the kingdom of God is greater than just the American church, the American dream, that really sustained me through some of those big, big questions. So that's a little bit about my family heritage. Uh, got married at 19. Uh, my wife is awesome. Her name's Linda. And then we had five children. We have four boys and a little girl. I can attest to the fact that all of those things you've just said, I'm going to pick up on the fact that your wife is an awesome woman. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also want to say there's so much power in that story that your dad thought the eternal story of the kingdom way bigger than the American dream. And, you know, as you, as you talk to me, it sounds a bit like you could say that your dad was the first church planter in your family because he so bravely dug up his own roots to find freedom in America where he actually found freedom in Christ and handed that on to all of you. That's just so beautiful. So if we talk in terms of legacy, what dreams do you have for your five children? What hopes do you have for them as children of you know a courageous church planter like your dad and you? Yeah, you know, I, I am increasingly uh, becoming more convinced our purpose that God's called us to live in will never be uh, fully put on display in just one generation, that it takes multiple generations to actually figure out, like, okay, what was my life worth? If that's a relevant question, we can only ask that in the context of multiple generations. And so I love that idea of what's the legacy that we want to leave for our children. I have some like really personal dreams, and that is like I would love for my kids to continue on the work of you know serving God's kingdom in whatever capacity that is. You know, I've got one son who is a pre-pharmacy student, another son who's studying graphic arts design, and then a high schooler, and then you know a grade schooler, and the two-year-old. And vocationally, you know, I'm less interested in like what they're doing, but I, I do hope that it all ties into this bigger picture of. What is God doing in the world, and how do I partner with that? Um, and then there's uh, there's another side of me that I'm uh, very interested in seeing. How do they redefine what it means to be Hmong? You know, our our ethnic heritage background um, as a third generation American, because uh, you know I say this almost to kind of like my shame. They don't speak the language. Uh, they love the food. Uh, there's no question about that, uh, especially the four boys. But it's so interesting. Like, what does it mean to be Hmong uh, when you no longer speak the language? Um, and so there's almost a, a an experiment that's happening amongst their generation. And I, I want to encourage that because I think that there's a richness there in our collective history that can still be put on display, even if they don't dress the same way as their grandparents did, or they don't speak the same language. There's a lot of ritual and tradition that we don't carry over anymore. But I'm excited to think about like how they might be able to um, redefine what it means to be Hmong in their generation. And then thirdly, the thing that I really um, you know think about in terms of just like what does the future look like for my kids? and what do we hope and pray for, is I do pray that uh, they are used by God to, to help solve some of the, you know, when we talk about America and we talk about the issues that we're facing here in, in this nation, uh, racial tensions, uh, systemic injustice, those kinds of things, regardless of how anybody feels about that, we know that, you know, we don't have perfect systems. I, I hope and pray that my kids can be a part of some of those uh, solutions at the very basic level, at the neighborhood level, at the civic level. Yesterday was you know, we voted for our our local uh, government people here in Aurora, and I took my son Abe with me. Uh, he's seven, uh, 
I've taken my older boys voting before and not because like, you know, I, I'm not the guy who says, you know, if you're a Christian, you need to vote a certain way. That's that's not me. But I do think that uh, they have a civic responsibility. And at the end of the day, if you want to see systemic change happen, you have to be concerned about what's ha- happening in civic politics. So we're not talking about politics on this show, but what I do want my kids to understand is how life works and uh, how their faith can make an impact on those things. Yeah, I think it's really important that our faith does speak into every area of our lives, including how we approach voting and how we ask God how to do that. That's a really thoughtful way to raise your children. Thanks for you and Linda for doing that. You talked a bit there again about multi-ethnic tension. I know that you've been blessed to develop and serve and encourage in many multi-ethnic congregations. So if you could imagine the very best model and expression for the Church of Tomorrow, what would you think it looks like? That's a great question, Sharon, because a lot of my work day to day is trying to reimagine some of that. To answer your question straightforwardly, I think there are multiple paths to the church of the future. And I think that some of the best expressions are still ahead of us. Uh, That isn't to say that our traditional expressions, our large church expressions, that none of those are valid. All of that is absolutely valid. But I think about like um, the natural organic paths and way that people congregate and form uh, social entities. And the way that we're going to do that in the future, I think, is there's going to be a, a lot of family-to-family networking um, that is going to happen. What I mean by that is that, you know, if we think of church primarily as organization, that's only one paradigm or one model to think about church, you know, because uh, if you look at the church all around the world, that's not the only way to think about church, you know, church is organization. In the United States, you know, we kind of have this 503c nonprofit understanding of church, but there are, you know, various models of church where there's family to family networks. And in some ways, the uh, immigrant church uh, started off functioning this way. It's not that they didn't become nonprofits and organizations, but it became primarily families meeting. And then I think the intentional network of networking those families with those who are different in background and culture for the betterment of the community. And so again, the intentionality here is you're public facing, uh, you're networking actual families and communities of families with different people from different backgrounds because you serve the community better that way. I think there are a lot of pathways there for the church to emerge. And in some ways, uh, as we talk about healthy multi-ethnic community, which I do think is, you know, we need more of that. We have graduated beyond this idea of multi-ethnicity as like, we need to have 15% of this, 20% of that, 50% of this. At the end of the day, diversity is not about like quotients. It's really about meaningful belonging. And I, I attended a funeral um, two weeks ago of a gentleman who died uh, from COVID. And it was, um, you know, he lived a really good life. He was Asian American and uh, he was a restaurant owner and he was plugged into a local church. And But he and his wife had mentored one of their workers who was white. Uh, they had discipled her for 18 years at the restaurant. Eventually she became part of the church and all that stuff. It was never like, hey, we need more white people in a part of our community. You know, I'm speaking from as an Asian American. It was more so who are the people around us that we're doing life with and how do we meaningfully integrate them into our life? And that to me is the next layer of multi-ethnic community that we really need to take serious because I think it's that where we're going to see new expressions of church emerge and not just like, like uh, sectioning off our sanctuary to make sure that we have a good balance of people. I think that's a, a pretty surface level understanding of multi-ethnicity. So 
Thank you, Daniel. That's really important for us to remember that phrase, I think, meaningful belonging. It doesn't matter necessarily what what the ethnicity is of our neighbours, but are they our neighbours? Therefore, they should meaningfully belong with us. And to go back to your previous point, at our dinner table. So, Daniel, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. But before we go... I cannot let you go without introducing our listeners to the fact that you are not only an exceptional worship leader, but an incredible singer. And it would be so wonderful for us if you wouldn't mind singing us a Hmong blessing or something along those lines. Do you think you would do that? I would uh, I would be honored to do that. And um, I'm, I'm trying to think of like what would be appropriate here. I, and I happen to be in my studio, so I do have my guitar. So I'm going to sing just a little bit of a chorus. Basically, the premise of the song is, you know, I'm thanking God for giving me purpose. And um, the chorus is, uh, And that means, thank you, God, because you gave me a purpose. So, Daniel Yang, thank you so much for joining us today and for reminding us that our purpose is to fulfill God's calling for the betterment of our community and for the growth of his kingdom. Sharon, thanks for having me on. You've been listening to God in the Ordinary, presented by me, Sharon Tedford. My guest today was author and director of the Send Institute at Wheaton College, Daniel Yang. You can find out more about Daniel at koobxwm.com. K-O-O-B-X-W-M.com. For our show notes, go to 61-things.com. This podcast is a Wise Word Radio 61 Things co-production. We pray that you're encouraged to reveal God in your everyday. day.